as we come to God's Word today and as we get around the book of Luke again, we're looking at this very, very important topic this morning. How do we react during the storms of life? And I want to make this as real as possible for you. And so before I bring God's Word to you, there's a video clip that I want to just put before you because it puts it in your world. Some of you might have seen this, but it's a testimony to God's goodness. I don't usually just incorporate video just all the time, but it really helps us just to ground it in our own experience. So let's ask the Lord just to do what he needs to do in us as we get around his word. Let's just pray. Lord, our Heavenly Father, as we come around your word now, we pray that your spirit would be the one speaking to our hearts. Lord, make us soft as butter before you because when the storms of life hit us, Lord, we tend to go into our default setting, which is fear. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you, Lord Jesus, so that you can continue to do your work in us and through us as others look at the way we react. Lord, be glorified, we pray. Amen. Hi, my name is Zach Smith. And I am 33 years old. I've been married to my beautiful wife, Mandy, for 11 years. We have three children, Lizzie, Jake, and Luke. And this is my story. I met Jesus when I was five years old. I grew up as a son of missionary parents in Ecuador, where I lived for 15 years. I went to college in Arizona, where I met my wife. For the next 10 years, we traveled around while I worked in the information technology field. We served in our local church, and I attended seminary. I often thought about working in full-time ministry, but no opportunities seemed right. I was told about a job here at New Spring Church helping with information technology. It was perfect, an IT job at an amazing church. I took the job and started working in October of 2008. For several months, life was very good and we were very happy. In May of 2009, at age 32, I was diagnosed with stage 4 colon cancer. Immediately I had surgery to remove a foot and a half of my large intestine and a lemon-sized tumor. I was told the cancer had spread to my spleen and to my liver. Chemotherapy was on the horizon. This was all a very sudden shock to me. I had always been very healthy and I found myself very confused. Why did I have cancer? Had I done something wrong to cause it? Was this a result of many years of sinful living in my past? I was working at a church and serving God. Where did I go wrong? But thankfully the confusion quickly turned to hope. I knew that God had a plan for my life. I did not understand why I had cancer, but I knew that God was in charge. For three months I underwent a horrible chemo regimen. Afterwards I had a scan done and the results were great. There was no cancer found in my body. We celebrated God's healing and God's faithfulness. And the next few weeks of my life were some of the best as I celebrated being cancer-free. But another scan one month later showed that the cancer had reappeared, this time in my abdominal cavity. I was devastated. Why was it back? Everything was just starting to make sense, but the reoccurrence of cancer caused even greater confusion. I resumed chemotherapy and did more tests. The cancer is now growing and getting worse. Unfortunately, the chemo drugs are no longer effective in my abdomen, and surgery is not an option due to the degraded state of my liver. Medically speaking, there is nothing more for me. 
and medically speaking, I probably will not live to 2011. The Bible says in Matthew 7:11 that God gives good things to those who ask. God cannot give me a bad gift. And it is through that lens that I can say that cancer is the best thing that has ever happened to me. I am a better husband and a better dad, a better boss and a better employee, a better friend and a better follower of Jesus. And through cancer, God has shown me some amazing things about himself. Those are indeed great gifts. I still have questions about cancer, why it went away and why it came back. I do not understand, but I know that God is in charge. I am praying for God to heal me. That is my desire. I want to walk my daughter Lizzie down the aisle. I want to watch my sons, Jake and Luke, become men. I want to grow old with Mandy. And I want to live my life with my friends here at work. But I may not be able to work for very much longer. And I may have just celebrated my last Christmas with my family. God chooses to heal me, then God is God, and God is good. If God chooses not to heal me and allows me to die, God is still God, and God is still good. To God be the glory. It's not the end of the story. We'll come back to that right at the end of the sermon. Let's just turn to the book of Luke, and let's see what Jesus did in a situation where there was literally a storm. Luke chapter 8, and we're in verses 22 to 25. Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25. Now, on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they launched out. But as they were sailing along, Jesus fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. They came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water? And they obey him. Now I want you to turn to camera two, please, to the book of Mark. Let's see how Mark describes exactly this sequence of events. And you'll notice that he gives us a few more details which kind of color in the picture. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. And on that day when the evening came, Jesus said to them, Let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. 
Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Have you come to a time in your life ever where you've been really afraid? It might have been because you've received bad news. It might have been because you were in an accident. It might have been because you just heard that you had a disease that really needed serious attention. The question we're going to look at this morning is, where is your faith when the storms of life hit you? Not other people, when they hit you. Where is your faith then? Have you been tempted to doubt God's goodness during those times? Have you been tempted to doubt his control in those situations? You see, in what seems to us to be the chaos of life sometimes, we often forget the reach of God's power, that he can reach right into our situation. We often have a very small view of Jesus Christ. We have a view which compartmentalizes Jesus Christ into the spiritual aspects of our lives only. But when the storms hit, then it's me, myself, and I. Is Jesus not Lord of all? The question we're going to look at this morning is, who is this Jesus that we see in this passage? Who is he? It's the same question they ask. It's the same question that the Apostle, that, sorry, that Luke asks right through this whole book that he's written. Who is this Jesus? So let's turn in your text to verses 22 and 23 as we go through this. We see here that Jesus had been addressing the multitudes. Mark tells us they didn't been busy all day, telling them parable after parable, and then teaching his disciples about parables. It had been a busy couple of days for Jesus. He'd been addressing the crowds. He'd been training his disciples. And now evening arrives, and, to put it mildly, he was tired and exhausted. I love that. It shows me Jesus' humanity. He said, I am man, but I'm God. But it shows his humanity to me too. He can get tired like I can get tired. He can get tired like you. He was Jesus. His humanity revealed. So why does he want to go to the other side? He says, let's go. Let's take the boats. Let's go and take a break. He also knew what was going to happen on the other side, by the way that he had to go and cast demons out of a man. But he wanted to spend some time with his disciples on the other side of the lake, away from the crowds. And so he says, let's cast off, let's go. And then as soon as the boat was in the water, Jesus is so exhausted that he falls asleep in the stern of the boat. Fully God, yet fully man. Now come with me as we go on to the lake, all right? And even if you get seasick, just listen. Here we are on the lake, and they're in that little fishing boat of theirs. They weren't big boats. And as they were in the middle of the lake, 
this fierce gale suddenly comes up. And Galilee was known for these storms. The word used in the text in the Greek is lilops. A whirlwind came down. It was very, very intense. And if you know anything of the geography of the Sea of Galilee and the surrounding area, it is, has got hills and, and mountains surrounding it. And Lake Galilee itself is at 600 feet below sea level. And so the effect is, if you know anything about cool air and hot air, that this cool air would sink down and it would push up the hot air. And that would cause massive storms on the lake. That's how tornadoes are formed, by the way. And so this cool air came rushing down with force from the ravines in the surrounding hills. And remember Mount Hermon, 9,200 feet, a lot of surface area. And so this comes down. I sound like Jim Hickey. But see the picture. There's this boat in the middle of the lake. This air has come down. It's rushed down. And suddenly there's this massive storm that this boat is caught up in. And our text says that it was started, it started to be swamped. And remember something about Luke? Luke was a sailor. That was one of his hobbies. He loved sailing. And so when Luke says a storm came up, he meant it. It wasn't just the average few waves that those of us who don't often go fishing experience and we think this is a massive storm. No, this was a storm on Galilee. And it was some storm because it frightened even experienced professional sailors. Remember, Peter was on one of these boats. He would have been as worried as the rest. He was probably in charge of that fishing boat because he was a sailor. And so here they are, this boat being tossed about like a toy boat in a storm. And so from a human perspective, yes, they were in great danger. Now, I just want to go into brackets here. Did Satan have a hand in the storm? Some have said that Satan was trying to take Jesus off guard while Jesus was sleeping. And so while he's sleeping, the storm comes up and Satan tries to destroy Jesus. Was Satan trying to get rid of Jesus before Jesus confronted the demons next? Some have said that. But is it true? You see, these these things that we hear and then we believe. Does Scripture say so? Scripture is very clear, you see. No. Satan isn't in control of nature at all. God is. God is in control of all nature, of all things. And there are many who hold this wrong view, but it's inconsistent with Scripture. So get rid of it out of your psyche. It is not Satan in control. God is in control of all nature. Job 28 verse 25 says, I love this, and this is Job speaking, by the way, and he experienced nature at its worst. God gives the wind its weight. Ever felt the weight of the wind on a surface area? God is the one who brings about the wind. Psalm 48 verse 7. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. Yes, bad stuff happens, but who's in control? God brings the wind. Psalm 78 verse 26. Many other verses. You see, God made use of the winds and the waves, and he makes use of them to realize his own purposes. This is a sovereign God at work. And they might be called the laws of nature, but after all, they're his laws, aren't they? And so God uses nature for his purposes. And while I'm in brackets, let's just carry on with this thought. This was no accident, you see. Even our text brings it out. In the, the original language, it's written in the passive form of the verb. 
They began to be swamped. They began to be in danger. It's a very specific form of the verb used, always associated in Scripture with a specific, a very specific point in time, and always according to God's plan. It's like if you've done any navigation, if you've got a GPS, you put in waypoints. Alright? It's a specific point, you mark it, and then you can keep track of where you are going or where you've been. Now, they began to be swamped, was a waypoint in God's plan. He knew it was going to happen, and it happened. And the boat was about to sink. These people were in danger. It was a waypoint in God's plan of salvation for them, to teach them something. The same phrase is used again, Luke 9 verse 51. The days were approaching for Jesus' ascension. It was a specific point in God's plan that has to come about. And so here these disciples are in the boat with Jesus. And God knew that it was going to happen to them. It was of his doing. It was a divine appointment. You've heard me using that phrase often. And so see them in the boat here. And now they're going to experience Jesus not as a man, but they're going to experience this man Jesus as God. And so they come to him. He's sleeping in the boat. Master, master, we're perishing. Hey, I feel for them. I would have been doing the same long ago. We're perishing. Lord, save us, says Matthew 8.25. You see, these disciples were thoroughly frightened. But the thought didn't even go through their minds that they were with Jesus and that because they were with Jesus, they should be kept safe in the end. You see, their circumstances dictated something else. Their circumstances told them, we're in danger, we are going to die. Panic, fear. That's our human psyche, isn't it? They were at the human limits. And that is where we see God at work. It's when we are at our human limits, that is where God works most clearly. They see the power of Jesus Christ even over the natural elements. Now, up to now, they'd seen him healing people. Mm, Yeah, okay. They'd seen him raising a person from the dead. That takes some doing. They'd seen him casting out demons. They'd seen him getting a whole bunch of fish into a net. Now, I'm a fisherman. I'd love to see that. They'd seen it happening in front of their eyes. But they'd never seen Jesus in command of the big stuff. And now they're going to see Jesus Christ in a whole new perspective as Jesus takes control. Mark chapter 4 verse 38 gives us a little inkling too of what's happening over here. Remember that little phrase? Master, don't you care that we're perishing? Do you get there's a little bit of bitterness there? Hey, Master, stop sleeping. Look at us. We're about to die. How about taking us into consideration instead of sleeping there? We're in trouble, Lord. Don't you care? you get that? There's a little bit of bitterness there. Have you ever been in a situation and you're starting to point the finger at God? Lord, why did this have to happen to me? Now? And it explains the Lord's response to them a little later when he says to them, Why are you frightened, O men of little faith? You see, there's a gentle rebuke there, says Matthew. O you men of little faith. There's a gentle rebuke there. I love that. It's God showing compassion and yet being firm with them. He says, I understand that you're afraid, but have you forgotten who you're with? I'm your Lord. The one who loves you, I care for you, 
and we're in this together. But I'm Lord of this situation and I'll show you. And so Jesus shows them. So he gets up. And imagine there's a storm going over here. Do you see it? Can you feel the water and the waves? And he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. And he uses three words to do that. Peace. Be still. How do you rebuke? Why did he use the word rebuke? Which, which means to be muzzled. Be muzzled, you wind and waves. Well, Jesus was asserting his authority over his own creation. And if he says, be still, then they still. Because he created the wind and the waves, didn't he? And so they know his rebuke. They know his authority. Can I just go into brackets once again? I feel like Paul sometimes. Much less of a man. You know, sometimes we use that little word rebuke and I often hear it being used. We rebuke you in the name of all kinds. You know, we've got no right to say that. Yes, all authority has been given to us. Jesus said that in Matthew. But to do what? To go and make disciples and everything that goes with it. It's not our place to rebuke anything. God has got the authority to rebuke. We don't. The only thing we rebuke is our fellow man when they sin after we've examined our own lives. So let's get that out of our vocabulary too. Unless you can show me a verse that I kind of missed. It's not what rebuking is about. Rebuke means authority. And Jesus has authority over his own creation. And so he rebukes the wind and the waves. And if you've been ever fishing, when the wind drops, it takes about a day, half a day, for the waves to also drop. But here a miracle happens. Jesus says, peace, be still. Immediately the wind is gone, the waves gone. It is flat sea. And I love that. Out of that sudden stillness, imagine the chaos and then sudden stillness. Out of that sudden stillness, Jesus' voice comes to them. Where's your faith? Do you not yet understand who I am? I am the Almighty and the Sovereign God. Where is your faith? And at the same time, the Bible gives us some insight into what the disciples were thinking. They were frightened by the storm. Yes, they were. But when they saw Jesus at work, then they had fear. And they said to themselves, Who is this man? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Obviously, we haven't seen him for who he is. There's only one answer, you see. He must be who? God. This must be God. He must be. It's the only answer after this demonstration of raw divine power. He's even greater than we previously imagined before. It takes deity to change the weather. You see, Jesus was addressing their fears and their amazement even before they expressed their response in their hearts. Where's your faith, my disciples? With me as your Lord and protector, why were you so afraid of the storm? And why are you even now so afraid? Because I filled it. Where is your childlike trust? And yet they still didn't fully understand. Oh man, it's human, isn't it? We are sometimes, excuse the term, so spiritually thick. We are, I know, 
It takes such a long time for us to learn these lessons. And here Jesus calms the elements. And then he has to continue to teach them. They're still on their way. He's going to cast out a demon next, out of a man, multiple demons. They're going to see pigs running over a cliff, big stuff happening. But that was all to teach them who he is, God of all. And so I come to that question to you and I this morning. The very same question that these disciples are faced with, that's given to them. Who is Jesus to you? You see, in life, stuff happens, right? Who is Jesus to you in the middle of it all? And there are three lessons we can get from this. The first one is this, that during life, it doesn't matter if it's good or bad stuff, God is sovereign at all times. God is sovereign at all times. In other words, your circumstances are in his hands. It's not dependent on Satan. Your circumstances are in almighty, sovereign God's hands. But the question for you and I is, and our response, do we have a good time faith only? You see, we are all right to trust God when things are going well, but when things go badly, suddenly our fear is supreme. And we've got to keep our eyes on the Lord. God knew what would happen on the lake and he knows what will happen and is happening to you as well today. He knows. Your faith should also be unwavering on him. I want you to listen to this quote. I think it's such a true quote. Listen to this. Faith is not just believing in spite of circumstances. Rather, it is also obeying in spite of feelings and consequences. You see, it's the feelings and consequences that get to us. We look at the wind and the waves, and suddenly, obedience goes down. Suddenly, our faith is starting to disappear. I repeat that. Faith is not just believing in spite of circumstances, but rather it is also obeying God and His Word in spite of feelings and consequences. Those are our greatest enemies. Obey your sovereign God. Secondly, we learn that doesn't matter what happens to us in life, no crisis is greater than Jesus Christ. Say that with me, please. No crisis is greater than Jesus Christ. No crisis is greater than Jesus Christ. And he may not take you out of the event, and he usually doesn't, by the way, because he's teaching us. He won't take you out of the event. He can, by the way. He can do that too. But usually he lets us go through it. But here's his promise. He is there with us through the crisis. Isn't that amazing? I think of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Think of those men in the middle of this fiery furnace thrown in there. And as King Nebuchadnezzar looks in somehow into that furnace, there he sees a fourth person with them, one like a son of man. Jesus is with you through your fiery furnace, whatever that may be. He says this, with me as your Lord and protector, why are you so afraid of the storm? Where is your childlike trust in me? In other words, where is your big view of me? I'm the omnipresent God. I'm always everywhere present at the same time. I'm the omniscient God. I know everything there is to know, even your situation. I am the omnipotent God. I can do something about it because I'm all-powerful and I am the all-loving God at the same time. 
Praise the Lord for that. He's with us in these situations. And so we can say with David, Psalm 23 verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there's David walking through, I will fear, you see it? I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me in the middle of all that. Praise And then lastly, in your crisis, remember this, the third thing. God is still God, and God is still good. It doesn't matter what's happening to you, God is still God on the throne, the all-powerful God, and God is still good. Romans 8.28 says this, And we know, and that no means with all certainty, that for those who love God, all, Things, I repeat that, all things work together for what? For good, for those who are called or the called according to his purpose. Who's in control? God is in control. Who's with him in that situation? You are. It's not God with you in the situation. You are with God in whatever situation comes up. Do you truly believe that? Are you willing to trust God? That He is a good God? And that He has your good at heart? And yes, it may mean that you've got to experience savage storms during your life. And it may mean that you've got to face death and taste death. But you know what? When the waves of death and storms are gone, you will also hear that still voice. Peace. Be still. When you come through death, Jesus will be there to meet you. And he'll say to you, peace, be still, be with me now. I look forward to that day. God is God. God is good. We need to believe that. Let's pray. God, you are God. We are weak human beings. Help us in our unbelief. Help us when we go through dark times to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, to experience the reality of the hope, of the peace, of the joy that you give to us because you are God eternal. You are God all powerful. You are God who loves us. Keep our eyes on you, Jesus Christ. Help us to trust and obey you during whatever comes against us. And in the end, you will work in us. You will bring us through that situation. But more so, you will work through us. And others will see how we are reacting. And they, in their turn, will be pointed to you. Be glorified, Lord, I pray. The day that Zach died, there was a huge and sudden storm. The kind that creeps in without warning, comes at you fast, and leaves in an instant. As I was saying goodbye to my love, 
clouds came, the earth shook, and the thunder rumbled. One year and eight days after being diagnosed with cancer, Zach stepped into eternity. Ever since I was a little girl, I asked God to bring me the perfect husband. Zach and I met in the fall of 1994, and after four years of dating, we got married. We added to the joy in our lives by having our only girl, Lizzie Darling. And then, 19 months later, God blessed us with our first boy, Jake. But our family wasn't complete there. We then had our cherry on top, Luke. We were a perfectly happy family of five. When Zach died, I was wrecked. In an instant, I had lost my husband, my best friend, and an incredible father. My world had changed forever. My identity in the past 17 years had been so much about who I was with Zach. He was my everything. Even though he dealt with a year-long battle of cancer, it seemed also sudden. And now the kids and I were left to learn how to grieve. We spent the next few months trying to figure out what this life without Zach was supposed to look like. His absence was overwhelming. I prepared way too much food at dinner, not remembering that he wasn't there to eat it with us. One side of the bed always stayed made. There was no one to sleep in it. His chair sat empty. And I no longer heard the sounds of him and the kids playing while watching TV. We were now a family of four. Grief is so hard. No one can tell you how you are going to feel or when it will strike. But God is so good and so faithful. He has given hope to our family. Hope for today when we grieve and all of the tomorrows that are yet to come. God has shown hope to my family through circumstances, gifts of goodness, and through the promises in his word. Zach and the boys were always such huge Broncos fans. And in October, we had the opportunity to fly to Denver, Colorado, and get to meet two of the Broncos players, Tim Tebow and Britton Colquitt. This was such a dream come true for my boys. And then in November, Family First Organization flew us to Tampa Bay, Florida, to receive the All-Pro Dad Award from Tony Dungy. It was so awesome to see my kids receive a standing ovation in honor of their dad. It was such a blessing to see how Zach's story and suffering blessed others. But even after the incredible experiences God has brought to us and through the love and support that we've received from family and friends, God ultimately shows His goodness to us through the promises of His Word. Jeremiah 29.11 tells us that God has a plan for us, and that plan is to prosper, and it's for hope, and it's for a future. I tell my kids this all the time. God is not a God of chaos. He doesn't just throw stuff to us in our lives and then walk away. He has a plan for us. We might not always understand that plan, but we know that it is good. There are some days that are really hard, and yet times are tough. But God reminds us of His goodness through the promises in His Word. God shows hope to people in different ways, which in my experience might not be yours. But I can tell you this. If you desperately seek and run after Him, He will make Himself known to you. As that soul left the earth and went to where it was meant to be, I looked out the window, and as the storm cleared, the sun began to shine through the clouds. 
It was then I realized that he was healed. He was no longer in pain. At that moment, God gave me hope. God knew that I would be a widow and mother to three at the age of 32. Why did he allow this to happen? I don't have all the answers. But I do know that I will praise God. Because through cancer and death and grief, God is still God. And God is still good. To God be the glory.